Whether a sense of patriotism invalidates the separation of church and state or similar founding principles in the United States of America. What's she going to do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Kane in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Welcome to Walk the Earth. I'm Greg, and this one's going to be a complicated question. I think the principle might be pretty simple, but just from the wording alone, you can tell there's a lot going on here. And to try to simplify it a little bit, it really comes down to this notion of civic religion. And I think I've seen it, well, I would say that I've seen it too many times in my lifetime, but frankly, the second time was once too many. More often than not in the last, say, 15 or 20 years, Fourth of July weekend has turned into, instead of a church worship service, where a group of believers gather together to sing praises to the Lord and to engage in fellowship and to equip themselves for ministry, it instead becomes part of a nationalistic fervor where the hymns that are being sung have almost nothing to do with Jesus, if you're Christian or God, but are almost all about the country. Battle Hymn of the Republic, My Country, Tis of Thee, The Star-Spangled Banner, God Bless America. This is pretty much the common fare for it. And I don't want to say that there's anything inherently wrong with those songs. I have sung those songs. I have sung um, some of those songs as a solo, as a matter of fact. So if anything, I'm humbly confessing that if there's a problem here, I've contributed to the problem. But I don't necessarily believe that I'm the source of the issue. Because to me, the source of the issue is an almost dominionist-based concept that America is a Christian nation, therefore the church and state are one, therefore the First Amendment has been misunderstood for 200 years, therefore other founding principles from our founding fathers uh, don't make sense and can't be relied upon, because anything that doesn't fit into this paradigm of America being basically a Christian nation doesn't make sense. I saw a post, and the person who shared it also did not know whether the original writer of this, I think it was a tweet actually, whether the original writer knew that it was being silly or not, whether it was a joke, whether it was sarcasm, but basically celebrating the United States' 2015th birthday, as if the USA goes back to the day that Jesus was crucified, or something like that, not understanding that our national heritage is still, that we're one of the youngest Western democracies out there. We, we don't necessarily have more than 250 years of existence to us, no matter what people might think about a, a legacy that somehow ties into religion. See, the danger to me of civil religion is twofold, and it's the same danger that you can find by reading the early writings of Thomas Paine, or looking into depth into what our founding fathers really believed. There are ideas that have been shared here just recently. In fact, I put them up on Twitter not, not long ago, this very day on Sunday, July 5th, about the private writings, so to speak, of even George Washington, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, that would lead people to question whether these men, by our modern evangelical standard, are Christian at all, much less people who thought they were founding a Christian nation. And yet I still want to be patriotic. I still believe that I am patriotic. And so is it possible to be patriotic and still have a commitment to concepts like the separation of church and state, to have a notion 
that Christianity is a bigger thing than American civil and civic religion might make it out to be. And I guess that's probably my point. So I went to a worship service today and I left very uh, satisfied, very edified, very pleased with it because it was not a worship service that would make you think that the American church is still confusing its faith with the American flag. It was a worship service that looked like, ah, for the sake of argument, almost any other Sunday. And that might be where I want to begin. But let me first do a little house cleaning. Uh, just to kind of put some reminders out there that the website for Walk the Earth is the same as Inappropriate Conversations. It's inappropriateconversations.org. And you can find both of these podcasts sharing that RSS feed. Likewise, you can find both Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth on Stitcher. Stitcher Smart Radio is a great way to listen to podcasts on the go. It's another option that I use on my phone, as a matter of fact. And it gives you the ability to catch both Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth by looking uh, up Inappropriate Conversations as a site. I can interact with people more than one way. One of them is via Twitter. At IC underscore Greg is how you'll find me there. My email is IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com, and I do respond, have responded this week, as a matter of fact, to feedback that I've received, in this case on the most recent Inappropriate Conversations episode. Uh, having said all that, I think I want to jump to Facebook and just quickly say that there's a Facebook page for Inappropriate Conversations, and there's also one for Walk the Earth, and it was on the Walk the Earth page that I've really spent a lot of time on this topic, preparing for this topic, and I think I worded it this way. You can always tell when I'm wrestling with a topic, when I'm kind of struggling to get my thoughts together on an idea, especially for an upcoming Walk the Earth question, if there's a significant volume of posts that are related to that question that I share. And sure enough, this is one of those cases where for more than a week now, I've been kind of dealing with different questions online related to you know, patriotism and religion, I guess is the way I would word that. If I go back as far as July 1st, uh, Independence Day, should Christians celebrate or not? From Pathios.com. On July 3rd, 53% of Americans are convinced that God has a special relationship with the U.S. That from ChristianityToday.com. On the 4th of July itself, I shared the dilemma of the 4th of July from a writer named Mark Charles dealing with the inherent racism against First Nations people, Native Americans, that you can find in many of our founding documents, and including the Declaration of Independence, which is, of course, the date, the signing of that declaration is the date that brings us to July 4th as some sort of a national birthday. Uh, also yesterday, I shared one asking whether patriotism is a Christian value, that including some quotes from Frederick Beekner, who I've really enjoyed. And just today, God and Country, Idolatry and the Hymnal. And let me begin with that one. The writer for this one is named, I'm going to try to pronounce his name right, uh, Jonathan Einier, A-I-G-N-E-R. And just a quick bio on him, just kind of set the record straight, because I'm going to read a little bit of his article. And his article might, in the minds of some people, especially some religiously conservative people, raise questions. And I think his bio page cleans up some of those questions really nicely. He identifies himself as a Christian, an evangelical, but also post-evangelical. So evangelical in that he believes in a personal faith, in the finished work of Christ, but post-evangelical in the sense that he believes in the whole gospel, complexity in faith, grappling with Holy Scripture and community, trudging through ever-persistent gray areas, and learning to hold his faith with an open hand, which means rejecting the idea, the American idea, that the Christian faith can be reduced to a moralistic set of beliefs, political affiliation, or even something that can be won through a culture war. 
So, Jonathan Einer, and his article, God and Country, Idolatry in the Hymnal, begins with sharing a story that might not be that different from my own. Uh, not so much when I was a kid. When I was a kid, the United Methodist Hymnal was actively and regularly in use. I've told before, I think, on one of the Inappropriate conversation shows about the organist at the church I went to when I was very young, actually one time playing the, or the hymnal all the way through as part of a fundraiser, I think a fundraiser for hunger or something like that. So the commitment to the hymnal was pretty strong when I was a kid. But as I did get older, the you know, more and more of the uh, modern contemporary Christian music has moved in, and he's describing his church as being one that kind of dove headfirst into the modern music, relying less and less on hymnals, and getting to the point where the hymn books were simply sitting there dusty, barely cracked, and even less often used. Picking up in his article, he says this, There were two times of the year we regularly sang songs that could be found in those volumes. One was during the Christmas season, which is the evangelical version of Advent, when Jesus is born on the Sunday after Thanksgiving, followed by a month of overspending and overeating. The other was during the most sacred of holidays, the holiest day of the year, Independence Day. And I'm not really exaggerating either. The reverence and awe displayed on the 4th of July eclipsed that of any liturgical observances, even Christmas and Easter. Now let me back him up a little bit by jumping to a post from a conservative political site that was shared to me today by one of my online friends. I've told people before, I, I tend not to extend friend invitations on Facebook, uh, especially this, of course, because I'm talking about friends, it would be my personal Facebook page. I just don't, I don't ask people to be my friend on Facebook. I've done it a couple, three times in my life. Uh, so, you know, that, put it into perspective. It's not that it's never happened. It's just it's not something I normally do. But I also almost never refuse those invitations. Now, I say almost never. I do need to know you. I need to have suspicions that you're a real person. But if somebody from my distant past, with a name I know and a face I kind of recognize over all those years, sent me a friend invitation on Facebook, I would accept it without even thinking about it. Likewise on Twitter, if I know the person and they follow me, I'll follow them right back. It's that personal relationship that sort of drives it. The other thing I do, and this might make me strange, especially seems to be making me strange in the month of July, the year 2015. I suspect, although I haven't asked, but I suspect that a record number of people I know have unfriended other people I know, or at least unfriended other people they know. The Supreme Court coming down with a couple of rulings, one related to health care, one related to marriage, seems to have been the straw that broke the camel's back in the minds of far too many people, and far too many of them Christians. I take a very different approach. I think if there's somebody that I think has lost their way, or needs to hear a different voice, or is different from me in a fundamental way, whether that be culturally or politically, if I sever the relationship, I might be the only voice offering that different perspective that they'll ever hear. And I refuse to allow myself to be so offended by the fact that somebody might be different than I am, that that would in itself be justification for not listening to them anymore. Now, there could come a point in time when somebody's perspective and attitude and approach is so pungent, so, well, maybe in some cases, maybe even so racist, that it's more than I can handle. But as long as I can bear it, as long as that's something that I can carry with me, it's a cross I'm willing to bear. Let's put it that way. But one of those friends who tends to express very nationalistic ideas uh, shared this. Now, it, it wasn't her writing. 
It's from an anonymous person called iPhone Conservative. The other thing you'll find is how often these strident positions are taken by people who are essentially nameless. Now, I realize that's somewhat hypocritical because on both inappropriate conversations and walk the earth, I function on a first name basis. I'm just Greg as far as it goes. But in this case, we're not even talking about just Greg. But here's what iPhone Conservative had to share. It was a picture from June 27, 2015 of the White House lit up in rainbow colors following the Supreme Court decision on marriage. And then July 4th, 2015, with the White House back to normal and no longer lit up. Of course, that implies it was lit up in rainbow colors for all that time. It really wasn't. It was a short moment in time. But I think the implication is that somehow some serious taxpayer dollars should have been spent not finding five colors of the rainbow to shine on particular sections of the White House to create the the impression of a rainbow over the White House, but maybe should have gone with red and white stripes or uh, an image of the American flag or something. And, and don't get me wrong, I understand conservatives very well. The second the White House did that, they would come under attack for wasting taxpayer dollars. But their point was the White, the White House seemed more enthusiastic about a Supreme Court marriage decision than about the 4th of July holiday. And I'll only offer my opinion on it in that I was relatively unbothered either way by the image of the White House on June 27th. If it made people that I care about happy, great, all the better. It didn't necessarily mean that much to me either way. But I will say that an historic once-in-a-lifetime decision by the Supreme Court is a little bit different than a day that falls on the calendar and resumes and repeats every year. But to get to the post, and quoting iPhone conservative, Let's be perfectly clear about what is going on here. This was not an oversight. It was not a mistake. It was a deliberate snub, a middle finger flip to over 50% of the country. The decision to light up the White House in celebration of the Supreme Court ruling was not a spontaneous case of someone flipping a switch. It involved planning and consultation. The administration chose to make a highly visible statement about its position on gay marriage. The decision to not light up the White House for what is arguably America's most important holiday also must have involved planning and consultation. The deliberate choice to not light up the White House, even as an olive branch to those who were offended by the actions of the administration on June 27th, shows clearly the petty spitefulness that is marked by this administration from day one. iPhone conservative. A couple things I want to note here. First, that I don't recall in my lifetime the White House ever being lit up in colors before. So if it was a one-off, then it was a one-off. It might be different if every other year, every other presidential administration had lit the White House up in red, white, and blue. It might have happened, I don't remember. I suspect that two, three years from now, I'm not going to have any recollection of the White House being in rainbow colors either. But then again, it's not as personal for me. But it's interesting, because there's two ways you can take a political issue personally. You can take it personally if it's about you, and there is a significant percentage of Americans for whom this Supreme Court decision was about them. It was either about them because they are gay and one day want to get married, or they are the immediate family of people who are gay, or they are loved ones of those same people, or people who've known couples for years who now can finally do with their relationship what they've wanted to all this time, therefore they're happy for their friends. It's not just a 2 or 3% number. It's probably a 15 or 20 or 30% number. If you measure the critical mass of people who are part of an LGBT group by who they are, and also that group of the people who know and love them and the people know, who know and love the people who know and love them. It's like anything you see in evangelism. Things can multiply very quickly. The notion that if two people share with two other people their relationship with Christ 
and those people also evangelize, that, well, exponentially is the right word for it. The more important reason that I shared this, though, because Walk the Earth is not a political podcast, the more important reason I shared it is to call out that someone has decided that Independence Day is arguably America's most important holiday. It's interesting. Even if we decide that it's a birthday, am I on board with the notion that this day, this birthday, is America's most important holiday? Well, let me unpack that just a little bit in a couple of different ways and talk about it from from the way I do believe, and then I'll talk about it from the way I think these people probably believe. What does iPhone conservative really believe? I can't speak for that individual. I can't even speak for the gender of the person. But I'm going to assume it's a him, just for the sake of argument. And I'm going to say that, first off, what do I believe? I believe that America celebrates a lot of holidays. Some of them are religiously oriented and some of them are not. Of the ones that are not religiously oriented, the one I feel is the most important is Thanksgiving. Which is ironic, because I bet I know a lot of people who are Christians who believe that Thanksgiving is a religious holiday. I don't see a heck of a lot of basis for that, except for the connection between thankfulness and gratitude and an understanding of God's grace and forgiveness. But I see Thanksgiving, Fourth of July, New Year's Day, I see those as secular holidays. And for me, the most important of all of those is, is Thanksgiving. Just like the most important day in my personal life isn't my birthday, it isn't even my wife's birthday. I think our anniversary is more important than both of those days. In some ways, I sometimes joke with people about their birthday by thanking them for surviving another year, because that's kind of the level of achievement that's been done there, whereas another wedding anniversary is kind of a bigger deal than that. You've got two people who've not only survived another year, but maintained a level of commitment and love that ought to be honored and cherished, perhaps a little bit more than just a birthday. So to me, Independence Day, birthday. Thanksgiving Day says a little bit more about our country. But that might fall on deaf ears for anyone who's not an American, because it is truly an American thing. But then there's this other set of holidays that Americans tend to get off and take off every year. Things like Christmas and Easter, for example. And I would bet you that your average Christian nation Christian, you're especially somebody who's part of a dominionism movement, would think that Christmas and Easter would have to be more important. This author, uh, Jonathan Einger, uh, implies really clearly that his perspective is that Christmas is the biggest day of all for politically conservative evangelical Christianity. And I've seen that in recent Walk the Earth questions. We've talked about whether uh, Easter is more important than Christmas. And, and I say I personally feel that it is, but I don't feel that a lot of evangelical Christians could necessarily make the same claim. They might make the claim intellectually, but in the way they live their life and the way they do their thing, I think they perhaps believe that Christmas is a bigger deal. If you just looked at it and tried to measure the emotions and the efforts behind it, Christmas seems to be a bigger deal, and by far a bigger deal to most evangelicalism, including the religious right, including the politically active conservative wing of the religious right. It's a bigger deal than Independence Day, surely. And yet t today, when I was driving on my way to church, I had to ask myself whether this week, well, here's the way I put it. For just a ton of Christianity, this wasn't really even July 5th, 2015. This was 4th of July weekend, and therefore this was 4th of July Sunday. So I think that it's safe to say that Anya is right in suggesting that 4th of July is really a big deal, as he calls it, the holiest day of the year for some churches. Back to Anya's writing. At the time, I certainly didn't think twice about that little section in the back of those hymnals called God and Country. At some point, that all changed for me. I think it was a gradual shift during my college years as I began to confront the nationalistic Christianity I knew with our country's rather sordid, checkered past. 
this Christian nation myth evaporated in the stark divergence between American history and the way of Jesus. And even with its benefits, America has never looked like Christ. But the American church can't seem to make a clean break. We can't seem to figure out how to be resident aliens here in a place where, frankly, it's pretty easy to be a Christian. And still we blindly welcome nationalistic fervor into our corporate worship. In discussion with a pastor friend of mine, I've noticed a recurring theme of resignation surrounding the church and the fourth. Many of them have told me something like this. Yeah, it would be better if we could just not mention Independence Day, but our congregation expects it. And it's not... It's just not a hill I'm willing to die on. In fact, sometimes they brag about keeping the patriotic influence to, quote, only a few songs, unquote. I'll leave the article which I've shared on Walk the Earth to speak for itself. There's more here. Uh, Ponder Anew is the name of the blog on Patheos, and the article is called God and Country, Idolatry in the Hymnal. And he speaks more pointed words, and I could share more of them because they actually do speak to the question of whether a sense of patriotism invalidates the separation of church and state, or a lot of other founding principles behind the United States of America, and what it means to be a citizen of America, but also a citizen of the kingdom of God. And that's a big deal. So let me hit a couple of things simultaneously. One is this idea that you can have a dual citizenship, and it's built on the notion that we should be having a dual citizenship. There's a lot of Christians, too many Christians, in fact, who believe that the kingdom of God is just a synonym for heaven and something that only happens after death and maybe something that still happens even a long time after death. Because some really great Christians died a long time ago. And some of those great Christians have still not found the new heaven and the new earth yet because they're still waiting in Abraham's bosom for the time of Jesus' second coming because it's only after the second coming of Christ and the final judgment that the new heaven and the new earth is established. And for them, it's that new heaven, new earth idea that is the kingdom of God. But Jesus speaks very different words in all of the gospel passages. He is alarmingly consistent at using a phrase like, the kingdom of God is among you. Jesus was saying, I am here, and with me is the end of the era. It's alarming to me how many people I meet who think that when in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus promises that not one dot or one iota is going to pass away from the law and the prophets until all has been fulfilled and accomplished. Some Christians still believe Jesus hasn't fulfilled or accomplished much of anything. They still believe that all the dots and all the iotas are still there and that all those laws must be followed or at least seriously respected. And it's alarming because... I've never met any one of them who feels like every single dot and every single iota is still in effect. So if Jesus didn't accomplish what he set out to accomplish through crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, and therefore all the law is still in effect and all the dots and all the iotas are still there, what is the justification for saying any of the dots and iotas have gone using the words of Jesus? I'll give you two phrases of Jesus that explain my worldview. And perhaps my worldview is a little bit controversial. People have pointed that out to me, and I've simply, I simply smile and nod and say, well, yeah, okay, it's still biblical. Jesus said, I've come to accomplish something, and then on the cross, he said, it is accomplished. I'm kind of good with it from within that paradigm. And it's for that reason that I feel like, yes, we can and should expect to be citizens of both the kingdom of God, which is beyond this earthly realm, beyond time and space, as a matter of fact, and yet here, and real, and with us now. And at the same time, I'm the citizen of a 
township and a city and a county and a state and a country and I'm somebody who's living on this planet. I joke from time to time on the Inappropriate Conversations podcast that I sometimes feel like I'm a creature from another planet, that I don't fit in here, that I'm a guest of sorts, but all the same, whatever that green card is, I've got some sort of guest worker visa, I've got some sort of citizenship on this planet, and that citizenship certainly gives me the right to celebrate the 4th of July with as much fervor as I see fit, or when it comes to Sunday worship services, as little fervor as I see fit. Because it's one thing to look closely at the citizenship of the kingdom of God and say, hey, are we doing this right? Do we understand it properly? And I will tell anyone who suggests to me that we're not doing it properly unless we're waiting until the second coming of Christ happens, because Jesus didn't tell us to wait. But the other question that I've got is whether or not we're doing the citizenship of the United States of America properly from the perspective of conservative political ideology. Because when people say that we're a Christian nation, that our founding fathers were Christian, there's a couple of concepts that I've shared before that I'll, I'll share one of them again here. And then I want to just dive right into some facts. Because they're facts that I think that so many people who speak the loudest on this issue, who are the most upset about the colors of the White House when lit up, or where the flag is more important than the Constitution, all those sort of problems that I think you hear a lot when you hear political conversation happen. But for me, one of the issues is, I believe that a lot of people, not all of them, but a lot of people who came to colonize the original American you know, colonies came here as Christians, again, not all of them, but as Christians fleeing the persecution of other Christians. Now let's talk a little bit about the ones who weren't, because that's not an insignificant number. Some were simply seeking you know, financial and uh, employment opportunity. Some may have been running away from other much more mon mundane problems, like getting somebody pregnant out of wedlock or going bankrupt or something like that. But there was no shortage of colonies set up by groups of people who were together from a religious perspective, with a shared denomination of sorts, to use the common term. And they were fleeing the persecution of people who objected to their religious ideals and were willing to make them pay a price for having a different point of view than a, a religious majority did. Now, I've tipped my hand here. Those Christians who came to, to America and helped form the United States of America were fleeing the persecution of whom? The answer is other Christians. There are very few, if any that I'm aware of, Christians who came to form the original colonies that became the United States of America who were fleeing the persecution of a large, powerful set of Jews or an influential set of Muslims. You didn't see a lot of Americans coming to form colonies where they could set up their religious beliefs the way they saw fit because they were living in the Indian subcontinent and feeling the pressure of being under the thumb or under the heel of Hinduism. Most of them came from Europe, fleeing European Christians. Now, this may have been Protestants fleeing France or Italy, or Catholics fleeing from England, or Protestants fleeing other Protestants in places like the Netherlands. But whatever it might be, these colonies were made up of people who came to this country, some of them as Christians, not all, and some of the ones who were Christians were here fleeing persecution. But almost all of them who were fleeing persecution were fleeing the persecution of other Christians. That's a piece of our legacy we don't talk about, even on our birthday, it seems. But the other problem, the second thing I wanted to hit, and it's a bigger issue by far, is this, this logical error that we make. And I forgive it, 
as much as I can because I understand where it comes from. It's it's simply the the propensity of people to believe that whatever happened before their birth happened forever ago. It's this notion that if you were born in the 1960s, anything that happened in the 1950s might as well have happened in the 1650s because you don't have any recollection of it occurring. You don't remember it. It's why Americans are you know, generally pretty bad at naming any president in any sort of accurate sequential order before, if not before their lifetime, certainly a, a decade or so before their lifetime, they get really shaky. Can't remember which Roosevelt came first. Not really sure whether it was Cleveland or McKinley who had two terms and who was the guy in between or was it Taft? You know, that sort of problem, right? And so this is what's going on with our country where we have a lot of people who honestly and sincerely believe, not that they're right, but that they could pass a lie detector test, that our country has always been a Christian nation. So rather than share a whole bunch of quotes from founding fathers that call into question whether they were even good deists, much less good theists, instead I want to share a document that came to me from a friend under the headline, Did You Know? Let's not let fear change our nation's great tradition and direction again. The theme here, and it may tie into the next inappropriate conversations in some ways, because I am going to look back at the 1950s in the near future, is that In the 1950s, from the Red Scare, which crept out of the aftermath of World War II, our country kind of freaked out a little bit and made a whole lot of changes. And that would not necessarily be so bad. It wouldn't be an issue in this question that I'm looking at today for Walk the Earth if we hadn't forgotten that they were recent changes. To me, anything that happened between, say, 1947 and now is arguably recent. We're not even a hundred years ago, as far as it goes. So... Half of our country's history was before this point in time. Let's put it that way. Our country has still had more years of the original configuration than the subsequent configuration. But I wouldn't be surprised if I've got a lot of listeners who have no idea what I'm even talking about in terms of things that changed in the 50s. So I'll share it. The original Constitution of the United States was ratified in 1789. It had only one reference to religion in Article 6. No religious test shall ever be required as qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. No religious test. For some ways in my entire lifetime, we've been administering a religious test, at least when it comes to the presidential election. I was born in the aftermath of the Kennedy assassination. So even if you go back to before my lifetime and all the questions about Catholicism versus Protestantism in the decision on Kennedy versus Nixon had a lot to do with the imposition of a religious test, and we've been imposing that test ever since. Fact is, if you look at the data, we've been imposing that test all along, just through the court of public opinion. So there's the Constitution. The de facto motto of the United States, adopted as part of the Great Seal of the U.S. by an act of Congress in 1782, was E Pluribus Unum, out of many, one. Congress changed it 174 years later, in 1956, to In God We Trust. This was, I think by all accounts, inspired by the Red Scare and the godless communism that was opposing not just the United States but the rest of the world by Soviet Russia. The original Pledge of Allegiance was written in 1892 by Baptist minister Francis Bellamy, who did not include the words under God. Those were added by Congress 62 years later in 1954. The U.S. didn't issue paper currency at all until 1861, And In God We Trust didn't appear on it for 96 years, happening in 1957. 
Just after the Red Scare in the 1950s, Congress changed the Pledge of Allegiance, our nation's motto, our money, and lots of other things over fear of communism. In a time when fear is traded like a commodity, and the word socialism is being used to create the same fear as the old word communism, let's remember that our country was not founded on fear. No. Our nation was founded out of hope for a better world, where all people were equal, that we were one from many. This is troubling on its face, frankly, that in some ways the Soviet Union's mission was, if not to overthrow the United States, which I think they felt would never work without destroying the planet, or would carry far too many casualties from either side, let alone both sides, to be justifiable from a military strategy perspective. But there was a certain hope that was articulated by Khrushchev in particular, that they would be able to bury us by changing us by scaring us into no longer being a free nation that could be the kind of competition on the world stage that we were for for the entire history of Soviet communism. Here we are, looking back at a time where not only was that aspect of Soviet strategy successful, but that Americans now no longer remember that it even happened. There's a line from, I believe it's the movie, The, The Usual Suspects. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing us that he didn't exist. Where there is no more pernicious threat than changing a lot of the founding principles of our country and doing so in such a way that nobody actually remembers that it was a change at all. So, politically, this is obviously deeply concerning. From just a perspective of pure patriotism, I think it's really important that we understand our country, where we founded, where we've come from, and deal head-on with this irony that so many people keep talking about going back to founding principles that didn't exist because they leapt into existence in the 1950s. So who, who is our founding father here? Are we worried about what was written by Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, James Madison? Or are we satisfied with Joseph McCarthy and Dwight Eisenhower? Now, it makes it sound like I'm putting those guys lumped together as allies of sorts. No, if you look at some of the ideas of Hamilton and Madison and Jefferson, and they weren't always on the same page with each other either. And maybe Eisenhower and McCarthy were even further apart. But the conflicts that those two men dealt with in the 1950s in very different ways have changed our country. And for them to change our country in such a way that it turned around and changed our worship is extremely problematic. Now, I never said that I wouldn't join a church that had an American flag in it. I never said that I wouldn't join a church that you know, every now and then, certainly, hopefully not annually, sings the Battle Hymn of the Republic. I prefer America the Beautiful as a hymn, or at least as a national hymn, to the national anthem, Star Spangled Banner. I prefer America, America the Beautiful of the two. But it's just that, even if this wasn't going to be a litmus test for me, it was the very least going to be a question of concern. So here we are. Whether a sense of patriotism invalidates the separation of church and state or similar founding principles in the United States of America. I would say from a scholarly perception, it absolutely does not. That that's a patriotism and a false version of America, therefore it's a false patriotism, therefore it shouldn't be celebrated. But as a question that's more of a matter-of-fact current state than a right or wrong where an answer can be given, I fear that there's a widening gap between the truth and our current state. And it disappoints me greatly when that gap is actively worshipped from the pulpit on Sunday. Now let me say that again, because that is perhaps a controversial idea. 
when we break out the American flag and sing the patriotic hymns and talk about the legacy of our country being really no different from the legacy of Christianity, that the Christianity is America, well, then you've got a real problem. You've confused the flag with our faith. Giving Jonathan Einer the last word. The only Christian nation in history is the church, which God will be faithful to and stand beside and guide as the nations of the world rise and fall. I think the test is clear. If Jesus were to physically walk into our sanctuaries this Independence Day weekend, would our services be able to go on as planned? Ideally, as God's people gathered for Christian worship, the answer would be yes, because it would already place Christ at the forefront. But what if we aren't singing praises to God? Instead, what if we were singing praises of an empire that will soon, like all other nations in history, crumble and fall? Would we continue that sort of endeavor in his holy presence? Would we not immediately collapse between the love of two kingdoms, realizing at once that we cannot worship two masters? Could we keep singing, O beautiful for heroes proved in liberating strife, who more than self their country loved? Instead of, O beautiful for wounded hands and feet of the one who defeated death, who calls us out of every tribe and every tongue and nation to be his people. To me, the answer is obvious. If we are worshiping as patriots first and Christ followers second, then we are worshiping at the wrong altar. If and as you were led, please join me in prayer. King of Kings, Lord Jesus, I don't often start prayers with you this way, but it seems more important on weekends like this. King of kings, Lord of lords, master of masters. Lord, help help us to recognize where we need to yield and bend the knee to you and identify the temptation, the powerful for some temptation, to yield and build the knee toward a version of you that is maybe more America than anything else. It's a sin for us to put anything ahead of you. It's an idolatry, a Christian form of idolatry. And Lord, I ask forgiveness for people who simply don't know any better. I ask for the wisdom and the ability, the opportunity to share words like this today that will help people understand just how recent our country's arc is and to put that into perspective of your eternal truths, your eternal message, and what you call upon us to do. Jesus, I know you do not expect me to think of America versus the world. You do not expect me to think of Christians versus non-Christians. Which means, Jesus, I know you expect me to reject the bulk of what I hear from politically-based Christianity today. Help me to do exactly that. Help me to remember who is on the throne. And help me to listen much more closely to what your mission is for me. Because your mission, more often than not, way more often than not, Jesus, doesn't seem to be dressed up in red, white, and blue. Help me to hear your words, and help me to share them. In your holy name I pray. Amen. What happened this morning, man, I agree, it was peculiar. But water into wine, I... All shapes and sizes, Vincent. You shouldn't talk to me that way, man. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions.
music by Kevin McLeod. Oh, Master, let me walk with Thee In lowly paths of service free Tell me Thy secret, help me bear The strain of toil, the fret of care Help me the slow of heart to move By some clear winning word of love Teach me the wayward feet to stay And guide them in the homeward way O Master, let me walk with Thee Before the taunting Pharisee Help me to bear the sting of spite The hate of men who hide Thy light Thus or distrust of souls sincere Who cannot read thy judgments clear The dullness of the multitude Who dimly guess that thou art good Teach me thy patience still with thee In closer, dearer company in work that keeps faith sweet and strong, in trust that triumphs over wrong, in hope that sends a shining ray far down the future's broadening way, in peace that only thou canst give, with thee, O Master, let me live. Next on Walk the Earth, whether a happily married Christian should attend a pride event with gay friends and allies. Thanks for listening.